listen, if you missed last week, uh, let me just catch you up very briefly. We just started a series called Grow to Go. And in your bulletins this morning are some sermon notes that you can grab. Um, so uh, we're just starting a, a series, Defending Your Faith and, and all that kind of thing. Just as um, if you're a kid in here, uh, your parents want you to grow up. They want you to mature in things. So it is with our Lord. God wants us to grow up in life. And to mature is a good thing. Sometimes to mature is a really painful thing. Uh, but it's but it's part of life and it's what God wants from us. One area that God wants us to grow up in is our faith. And someone said one time this, my my heart cannot rejoice in what my mind rejects. My heart cannot rejoice in what my mind rejects. In other words, if if I don't think this is really true, if I if I don't have some foundation for this, I can't really celebrate it. And I think some people, as many Christians in fact, have a weak faith, have an anemic faith, have a faith that is consistently prone to attack. Think of your immune system being down. Because they haven't had their mind convinced of some things. And that's, that's really where we want to go today, um, and really in the, in the weeks ahead as well. Now just a quick grow to go attitude check. Uh, one of my prayers has been this, that we don't grow in our knowledge so that we can buy bigger Bibles to beat people over the head with, right? Rather, it's this. We're not seeking to win an argument, but we're seeking to give a basis for faith to people. And I know that in the process, your own faith will be reestablished or reaffirmed up as you look at the evidence. Don't turn there, but just listen to James chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 5. It says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, anyone lack wisdom in here? You don't need to raise your hand. You can. I mean, that's just, that's just honest. We're in church. Be honest. Um, we lack wisdom, don't we? We don't have all insight and all knowledge. Um, I know some of the issues that we're walking in here with this morning and the, and the wrestling match that it may have been for you this week. Let me just say, I'm so thankful you're here. I'm just so glad that we're here together with God's people. Let me get back to the text. If anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Verse six says this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 8 goes on to call this person a double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. I don't know if this morning your faith is what you would call rock solid. And when you ask God for wisdom, you're able to just ask with complete faith. Or maybe you're in here this morning and you feel like a little tiny sailboat on the midst of some giant waves, and you say, man, that that's me. I'm just getting tossed to and from, left and right, and uh, and I'm feeling the instability of that. I'll tell you where we feel it most is when trials come, right? When the storm comes and beats against our house. Jesus told a little parable about this. We find out kind of where, where things stand. Apologetics is a fancy word basically for a defense, a written or spoken or now film version or other, uh, a formal defense. And, and what we're looking at is a defense of the Christian faith. Last week we looked at this, but I wonder how your passion for sharing and defending and refuting and persuading people is. Here's, here's last week in a nutshell if I could give it to you. I brought these up one at a time, and I don't think I've had as loud of a response from you people in months as I did last week as these different things came up. 
Uh, last night, unbeknownst to what went on here, um, the brothers and I were together, my, my brothers and dad, and we were all together kind of for a fun family reunion. And out of the blue, my brother, my oldest brother throws out Five Guys Burger, best burger ever. And it launched into this giant debate, right? And we're just arguing. And I'm like, here it is. He's an evangelist. And so here's the point. We already do this. We already make a defense for the things we're passionate about. So maybe the better question, Christian, is this. How is your passion for defending the Lord Jesus Christ? How, how is your, how is your week been in terms of, of pursuing telling people about what you're excited about, refuting other sides that say, no, that's not the best way, and actually persuading people. Uh, it's amazing that we would do this for a product or for a team. Some of you are very sad from last week, I know. Uh, for a team, but, but, not for, but not for things that matter even more. As we, as we get into today's specific topic, I want to take a, a brief little intro to talk about the truth about truth. To even talk about the idea of truth and thinking through that, um, we need to kind of set some things up before we move on. In John chapter 18, uh, one of the biographers of Jesus here, John, records this little story of Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate's a governing, ruling official, and so he has the power uh, in an earthly sense to put Jesus to death or to set him free. And Jesus makes this, this claim about truth. He says that he's here to communicate truth, and those who would hear his voice, uh, you know, would follow him and would know the truth. And Pilate asks this penetrating question. He says, what is truth? And he kind of muses that, I guess, to, to Jesus. And in massive irony, he's standing before what many of us through the centuries have longed to do, and that is to see God in the form of a person staring at him in the face. And he's asking this penetrating question, Here's a, here's a question for you is, how do you know? Uh, on the playground, I was on the playground that I grew up, uh, playing on yesterday at my elementary school. My kids were cruising around. We were hanging out at the, at the school a little bit. And on the playground, here's what happens. Someone makes a statement claim. Boys learn very early on, uh, at least my boys, my, my boys and my friends and I, uh, learn early on to make these, you know, bold truth claims. And someone comes and says, such and such, such and such. And then the other kids go, well, how do you know? You know, and right away, there's, you know, this thing kind of starts to go. So early on, we kind of learn this behavior of, of, um, of having to defend a statement that we make. And so, um, let me just throw out for you, I'm sure there's far many more than this, but, but just for the sake of conversation, tell me if you've come across these people, or you are this person, or you used to be this person. Just think about how do you know things. Okay? Let me throw out a few ideas. One is this. One is the idea, the school of thought, that it's true for me. People today, I would say, are conditioned to believe that if something um, is true, that, that something is true if they believe that it is true. So irregardless of the content of the reality, there's a certain pervasive mindset that says, if you believe it, it's true. Now, kind of a close cousin that I would wrap into this is um, is this idea of of if it's practical. If it works for you, then it's true for you. Here's what I re- here's what I get all the time as a Christian is I'm talking to someone and they'll say this. Well, that's great for you, meaning for me, right? Implying what? That there's a different set of reality, that there's a different truth, and that those two truths can kind of coincide and, and live happily in a condo together, right? And and, the, and that that's all okay, fine and dandy. 
Here's a little problem with that. There's a lot of problems with that, but let me just throw this out for you. To someone who would say that, um, you know, I mean, just ask them, how does death work out for you? I mean, is that practical? Does that work out for you? Usually the answer is not so much. I don't like that so much, but it's true. It's coming. It's a reality. It doesn't fit into their practicality. Even if they try to believe it away like I don't believe it, it still exists so that there's a, there's, there's a truth out there that's, that's there whether they believe it or not. Here's, here's a second one. A second one is majority rule. Majority rule says this, whatever is endorsed by society carries the weight of truth with it. Now there was a first grader who brought a puppy in for show and tell. It was a young puppy. And the kids all got talking about the gender of this puppy. Is it a boy or is it a girl? And so they're talking and discussing amongst themselves. And, and the teacher was kind of a little worried, wondering where this is going to go. You know, wasn't there a lesson plan that day um, to, to discuss these matters? And then uh, one little girl, Megan, um, she said, I've, I've got a way to, to figure it out. And the teacher was quite happy to let her discuss the birds and the bees with the, te- with the students rather than her. And here's what she said. She said, we'll take a vote. Now, little Megan, little Megan is the product of a democratic society that says, let's vote on this. And whatever, whatever people vote on is true. Now, now, don't you see this coming along that, 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 that someone might defend what's real, what's true, by saying, well, there are laws to this. The idea is they can't all be wrong. And there's a certain sense in all of us that either, um, it almost ties into fight or flight, but it's like I either just want to fit in with the group and I, and I wouldn't stand up and say no, or I rebel against everything. And I just, you know, I always go with the, with the non-crowd. But the majority rule is a, is a common um, problem or, or a common way of coming about truth. Here's a, here's a problem I would put to someone who thinks that way. Before the 1800s, there was no society that outlawed slavery. So, so is there truth? Is there truth that exists that laws haven't discovered yet and that the majority were wrong on? And so you, you put that out to, to someone. Here's a, here's another one. One is, um, I just do it. In other words, if I decide to do something, I just do it. It kind of ties into if I feel it's true or whatever. But in, but in essence, this person really doesn't feel the need to back up anything. In other words, who are you to, to ask me or, or get me to defend anything that I'm doing, saying, or being? It's my life. I get to do what I want with it. There's no sources. There's no study or reason to back it up. It just is. I used to work at a bank, and I love telling you bank stories because there's many of them. But our bank was next to a bar, and sometimes we'd have different people come in from the bar. One guy came staggering in on a slow afternoon, and he came wandering up to my window, which was kind of exciting because it was a boring day, and I was wanting something to happen. And so he shows up, he staggers up to my thing, and he has grabbed a deposit slip, and he's scrawled some things on the deposit slip, and he puts it down in front of me, and he wants to cash this check. So I looked at it, flipped it over, I may have asked for ID. I don't know how snarky I was in the, in the, in the moment, but I said, sir, we cannot, we cannot cash this check for you. And he said, he basically went with the truth. It just is. So just deal with it mode. He said, he said, well, it's good. And he kind of got agitated with me. There's a giant marble slab before me and I could take him just by weaving a little bit, you know. So, so I said, sir, I said, we can't do this. This check isn't good. Well, it just is. And, and, um, and I mean, it was just, it was the most ludicrous, absurd conversation. But, but here's the point of this. You don't need to be drunk walking into a bank to have kind of a similar, absurd 
conversation with someone about truth. And maybe some of you have had these conversations where you just go, wow, there's, tell me why. I don't need to tell you why. And so pretty soon you, you, you just kind of bump into a wall. And, and he, he eventually, um, he eventually left without much more incident. I think with his check. He wanted to make sure he had his check with him, um, because it was valuable. Here's the fourth one. A fourth one is this, um, reason, logic, and science. And this is the person who says this, truth is only that which can be proven. I would say this probably is one of the more prevalent ones around our area. We tend to live in a fairly wealthy, educated part of the world. Even if you don't feel wealthy or educated at the time, you probably are compared to much of the world. So because of that, there's a certain kind of pride that can come with knowledge, and it's just true. It's very true in theology as well, and there's a, there's a guarding against that. We don't want to be puffed up with knowledge such that love you know, dissipates from our life. But certainly in our area, I think this one kind of rules the roost to some degree. Here's the problem. There are many truths that are not accounted for by reason, logic, and science, and which can't be proven. We're going to dive into this pretty deep today. In fact, some of it might get kind of technical. And just like when you go, I've never been down uh, with a lot of pressure. The, the furthest I've been in a submarine is at Disneyland, you know. And someone told, I, they ruined it for me. They actually don't go that deep. It just makes it look like it. But I have gone up before. And you know how there's pressure and it's painful. It's a little bit uncomfortable. That might be the case this morning. We might be diving deep a little bit. And you're kind of, you know, at certain points, you're kind of losing out. You're thinking about, you know, Five Guys Burgers and in and out Come back. Just, just bring it back and just try to, try to hang with, uh, with the conversation. But, um, we're gonna dive into some of these, but let me just throw this one out since it's almost Valentine's Day. Here's one. I'm in love. Okay? Now that's a true statement. But here's the problem with that. I cannot prove to you with 100% certainty and repeatability to you by using these faculties of science and reason and logic to show that that's true. But, I would still know that to be true no matter what. So, so there's, there's truths, there's plenty of them that can't be proven with reason, logic, and science. Here's what I want to bring it back to. How, how do you know? So I've just kind of painted a picture of four very broad brushstroke kinds of people, kinds of reasoning that might go on. But how about you? How do you know something? Here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to pull out a pen. If you don't have a pen or pencil, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Um, just write down, right now on your notes, write down three things that you know. You, you're not going to have to share these. I'm not going to parade you up and make you defend them. So don't get panicky on me. Just write down three things that you know right now. I mean that you know that you know. So write them down. Go ahead and write three things right now. Now here's... Here's the part two to this. Part two would be this. How do you know that you know this to be true? So you don't need to do that right now because that might take a little bit more thought, a little bit more time. But writing down three things that you know might be fairly easy, fairly routine for you, but starting to really engage with thinking, well, how did I arrive at this conclusion to know, in fact, that that's true? What we're talking about this morning is the existence of God. Now, what I won't suppose is that in our short time together this morning, I'm going to somehow wrap up this conversation for us. Uh, this is one that goes on for centuries and will continue to go on for centuries. 
And it's a fascinating dialogue to have with most anyone, at least as far as I'm concerned. Clearly because I'm sitting here in front of a church teaching from the Bible, and with the title slide on the screen right now, I'm tipping my hand. Okay, God is, is what it says on the screen. But what I want to do this morning is this. I'm really encouraging you believers, you Christians in your faith, in terms of how do I engage with people. I hope there are some skeptics in here. I would venture to guess that any given Sunday morning there are skeptics among us. Some of you are blatant about it and okay with that, and some of you are not, and you're shy about it, and that's okay as well. I'm not really trying to go after the skeptic here today and say, let me walk through that kind of line of reasoning. But I, but I think that you'll be able to listen in as I teach to Christians about how to engage um, people with this question. What you'll notice is this. I hope you'll notice this. So far, I haven't asked you to turn to a text of the Bible. I've read one text from the Bible so far. I'm going to intentionally save my Bible reading for the end. Here's why. I think many people say this. How do you know God exists? The B-I-B-L-E. And they pull out the Bible. Now, that's a perfectly valid, logical reason. But to make a jump from how do you know he exists all the way to there without anything in between might leave a whole bunch of your coworkers, neighbors, friends totally out of the loop. Because they say, well, that's good for you, right? We're going to talk about the Bible and the validity of the Bible uh, next week and in some weeks to come. Um, but that's a whole separate side discussion. What I want to do this morning is I want to engage this question actually apart from the Bible. So I want to just, I want to, I want to intentionally circumvent the Bible for a second so that you can actually have a model of how you can talk about this subject without going to Scripture, um, at least initially. Some would say this. I've had this said to me many, many times. I'm too scientific or fill-in-the-blank, rational, logical, or whatever else, for religious superstition. So people have told me that all the, you know, people tell me that actually all the time. That some variation of that sentence. Here's, here's the presupposition. That, that's that's going along with that. Here's what that's being based on. There's a prejudice being set forward in front of my face when someone says that. It says basically this, that if you have faith or God talk, that that is subjective and therefore inferior and it's unknowable. And if you have scientific or let's say mathematical talk, that is objective, therefore superior, and that is knowable. Okay, That is a basic prejudice that I think is being issued to me when someone says to me, I'm far too logical or scientific or whatever else to believe in religious superstition like God, like the Bible, like Revelation, like miracles. Basic tenets of a, of a Christian. Now, I want to talk to you. Buckle up, okay? This is going to go fairly quick, but just listen up. Uh, it's all on podcast, so you can go back and listen to it at half bridge rush like this. Uh, you can listen to it it's at half speed. You could, you could, you could take, take it in again. Um, if you are talking to someone who is saying that, without them labeling themselves or wearing a label like this, they are essentially probably in the you know, science, scientific naturalist camp. The scientific naturalist camp essentially says this, that, that science is the paradigm for truth and rationality. Okay? Now, just think about people you know. They don't walk around calling themselves, I'm a scientific naturalist. Oh, good to meet you. Um, 
But they, but they probably are tipping their hands this way when they make a comment like, I'm far too scientific to believe in religious superstition. Okay? So what they're saying is the, the only paradigm to get at truth rationally is through the sciences. Now, if you are a purist in this camp, here's what happens. Even stating that, that that's the only way to get at truth rationally, you've actually proven too much by making that statement. Let me show you what I mean for a second. To make the statement that only truth comes from science and the natural world and our five senses and what we see um, is actually self-refuting. Uh, re refuting was one of the components of apologetics, that you talk about other points of view and you just show the holes in them. You say your presuppositions, what you are basing this on, is actually flawed. By saying that the only way to come to truth is through, um, is through science, proves too much because of this. That is actually a philosophical statement about science. That is not a scientific statement. So in other words, that truth cannot be proven by the scientific method. So to make a truth claim that the only way to get at truth is through science is a philosophical statement, not a scientific statement. Are you tracking with that? So do you see how that proves too much? So there are no real, I mean, a purist in this very quickly realizes that's kind of dumb. That's self-refuting. No one even has to argue with me. I've just argued myself out of what's true. So, so a non-purist, let's call them a moderate, says this. Okay, I'll give you this. There are some truths out there that don't fit within the scientific context. But there aren't that many, and they are certainly subordinate to science and mathematics, that which can be objectively known. Um, here's what I would, here's what I would say to that person. Uh, the person who even says that is, is, has many assumptions that kind of hold up their, all of their science and all of the work that they're doing, and they're not giving proper recognition to it. Let me give you just two simple ones, okay? Here's one of them. One of the things that a scientist would want is this. If Rich and I are doing experiments together, and he came up with some test results, I might ask my scientist friend, did you do the test fairly? What am I getting at? What I'm getting at is, are, are you being underhanded to try to twist the data or something to kind of prove your thesis or your theory? Or is there fairness? Is there truth to what you're doing as a scientist? You know what I've just done? I've just said that the truth required for good science is fundamental to getting to accurate results, right? You know what that is? Once again, that is a philosophical statement totally outside the realm of the scientific method. You can't get at that with science. Here's one more. So, so truth being in science is a massive part. It permeates all the fields of science. A second one is this. Here's a really simple thought. I know I'm going deep here. Words are an adequate way to describe the world and truth. That is a presumption. That, that, is, a, uh, that is something that science is standing on without even stopping to really think about it. Once again, that's a philosophical idea that you cannot get at with the scientific method. I could go on. People much smarter than me have made great lists that I could go on and on with this. And here's the point. Science is not above all these presuppositions that they stand on. So to try and make a value statement that says my, my repeatable scientific claim over here, that truth is actually more valid than these other truths, is actually really arrogant and short-sighted. And many just don't even take the time to stop and think about it. 
I would say this. Um, well, let me let me put this up first. Uh, there is a there is a certain pride to to mankind. I'm going to ask our resident uh, quasi Russian speaker to pronounce the name for us, nice and loud, Laura. Yuri. Okay. <laughs> let me let me say it confidently and boldly and see if it sounds right. Yuri Gagarin. Is that close? Who speaks Russian? Okay. Um, I meant to do that before service, but I forgot, so I thought I'd just ask her on the spot. Um, here's a here's a here's a Soviet cosmonaut who circles the globe and makes this statement. It's a famous statement that's been made, and and the idea is, look, we didn't see God out there. Throughout history, people have made pretty bold claims about God being dead, God being irrelevant, um, God not being there, or whatever else, being more famous than God, all kinds of things. Here's the here's the rub with the scientific method, with test tubes and with telescopes. They only go so far in getting at truth, right? So even telescopes, uh, there were people of a certain age that thought they had uh, the universe pretty well wrapped up. And then someone came along and did what? They built a bigger telescope that could see more things. And what it did was it actually reoriented the whole paradigm. Here's what's interesting with the church. The church has held positions that at times is in line with the Bible and science, and at times is way off. In, in, in terms of, of science and the Bible. And there's this, there's this fluidity going on with that. How do I know what to believe? Um, this is really an everyday question that goes on. Um, talking about these truths that I was just talking about, that science itself actually rests and builds on as a bedrock foundation that are philosophical in nature, and not scientific in nature. Let me fast forward 100 years for a second. I bet in 100 years, we will have to edit and change and modify what we currently think about certain things in science. This has been true. Here's how I know this to be true. You go back 100 years and see what was written and thought and understood. You go back 100 years before that, you catch my drift, right? So every 100 years, that's a, that's a pretty long time, there's going to be there's going to be giant changes. We thought, yeah, we thought this was true, but it wasn't really quite accurate. But let me throw out some other truths that science would say our truth is more valid and more authoritative, in fact, the most authoritative, than these other ways of getting at truth that are a little bit more subjective and, and we can't put in a test tube. But let me give you some truths, and let me have you think 100 years from now and think of these truths might still be there, okay? If there's any babies in the room, just cover their ears for a minute, okay? Because this is sad. But torturing babies is wrong. Torturing babies is wrong. Now, there have been a few really misguided societies that have kind of veered off more and more evil to where that's been accepted. But think right now if you believe with that truth, and then think in a 100 years if you think that will still be true. I think that's a pretty rock-solid truth that is true 100 years ago, is true today, and is true 100 years from now. We already talked about this, but love exists. That's a truth today. That will be a truth in 100 years. Here's another one. Here's a fun one to talk to a scientist about that they can't put in a test tube or a telescope. Here it is. Ready? I am thinking about science. That statement can't be proven with a scientific method. But that will be true today. In a hundred years, someone is going to be thinking about science. 
Someone, someone's going to come to the edge of a giant canyon and say, this is a magnificent canyon. And someone else will say, some might even call it grand. And they will sit there with their jaw open and they will just stare at the beauty of this thing. That doesn't really square with a naturalist. We can't, we can't get at why that's true. Beauty and majesty in that sense. If you're a cycling fan, uh, you know that Alberto Contador, he's the Spaniard who's been dominating cycling recently, uh, this week was busted for doping. Okay? Now, I bring up Alberto Contador for this reason. He got stripped of his 2010 uh, Tour de France victory over this. Here's what's interesting about doping and cycling, or doping in any country. Doping is taking steroids illegally. His claim was this. Look, I got some bad beef on the day I was tested. I ate it, and what was in my body was tested, and it was misconstrued as an illegal steroid. The Cycling Federation says, that's not true. We tested you, and here's the deal. With doping and cycling, I've read articles and articles on this. I'm kind of a fan of cycling, so I kind of follow this. There are so many names in there that you can't pronounce. Little little traces of this and that and the other thing. The way they do the test, I've never once run a doping test on someone. The variables that are involved in all of this, here's what happens is pretty soon it gets kind of cloudy and you don't really know who to believe. One story sounds kind of fantastic. You're like, oh, the bad beef story, huh? That's, oh, I could have come up with something a little better than that. But then on the other side, you're looking at this. And, and so how do you know what to believe? Two competing truth claims. Now, I know cycling is um, is kind of a little bit uh, out there, so let me bring it back to something that maybe is more familiar to you. If I were to bring this to you and offer to sell it to you, um, look at that. There's a statement I forgot to say. Um, we're moving into, by the way, two truth claims that maybe can't get can't get proven 100%. Here's what you have to do with it, okay? You can read it on the screen. <laughs> um, you have to accept it or you have to reject it. And there are just many things in life that we do this with, and, and we're gonna, we're gonna get more into this. Okay. So now, if I were to come to you and offer to sell you this, this corn on the cob lifesaver, okay? Um, and, and I would have the low price of $49.99, and you would look at that, and here's what you would think in your mind, okay? You would think, corn is precious to me, and I don't want corn drowning. Um, and so 50 bucks, I mean, really, 50 bucks to save the life of corn, that's not too terrible, really. So you might look at that. Someone else might come along and say, that's a terrible price. I'd pay 150 to save my corn. I, I don't know. I don't know what your thing might be. But someone else might come along and say this. That is not a corn on the cob lifesaver. That's actually a kerneler. And what you do is you put it on and you twist it and it takes the kernels off so you can eat it. And so you have two opposing truth claims and you're there before him saying, gee, is it this or is it that? Now, Kind of silly, but you come across these every single day. Two opposing truth claims, some that matter immensely. Some, like corn, probably not that big of a deal for you. But what do you do when you have two opposing truth claims? Here's what you do. I already know. You investigate, right? What you do is you start to investigate. If I'm the kernel guy, true product, by the way, I would point to that little hole and say, look, there's whole kernels in there. This is designed to be able to do this and then pour it out and start again and just take your corn right off the cob without the mess and goo. That's how it wrote it up. Um, of corn in the cob. Um, so for all you meat freaks out there, you're like, I'd pay way more than 13 bucks for that thing. But here's what you do. Without even thinking about it, you look to the facts. 
What are the facts? You tell me your truth claims about the lifesaver component. You tell me your truth claims about, about it being a, a kerneler, okay? You think about sources. You think about context. You think about the believability of it. That's kind of a nebulous term, but you just do. You say, did you really eat bad beef? Is that possible? Would that show up as a, as a steroid or not? And so you're making these assessments all the time without ever formally thinking about it. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the church, and he says this. He says that God gave gifts to the body of Christ so that the body of Christ can be built up. And then in verse 13 it says this, that this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. There is a lot of this going on. And it's not just right now. Clearly, in Bible times, this was needed to be guarded against. Christianity, unlike some other religions that I've explored and talked with people, Christianity repeatedly invites investigation. It calls for verifiable evidence to be examined by people. Christianity wants you to come and examine the claims. Just a, a cursory look at the Bible to see how many names and dates and locations and rulers and years and facts are there is really, really dumb if it's a lie. You know why? Because those can be verified. You can go and start to piece that together to see if that's true or not. Isn't it powerful to your mind, no matter what you believe about the Bible and Christianity, that for more than 2,000 years, people have been trying to discredit it, and yet here we are, the faith handed down to us. Somehow it's been given to us, and it hasn't yet been discredited. Let me... Um, let me move on to this. Maybe you're sitting here thinking this is all kind of a neat exercise, Dave, but does it really matter what I believe? A.W. Tozer said this in a book called Knowledge of the Holy. He says this famous quote, that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. So whether you're a Christian here and wear that label or not, Let's just suppose for a minute, if you don't believe in God, that there is a God. That would be the most important thing about you and your destiny and about your time right here today is what you think about God. There are some basic human questions that people have wrestled with through the ages and asked at some point in their life. I was in China and we were talking with a woman named Jane. She was our tour guide as we traveled around China. And um, it's just fun to be at a few different points in the world and ask some of these same basic questions. And they're just mulling around inside of us. And, um, and this question, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Deals with identity. It deals with purpose. And it deals with destiny. And through the ages, people have written about this, written poetry, sung songs about it, wrestled with it, debated it, talked about it back and forth. At certain points in your life, you've not cared one bit about this. 
like I said last week, we're, we're in the land of entertainment and diversion. You could be diverted away from this for years and years. But you know where this settles into the deep parts of you? Is when you sit at a funeral. Sometimes when you sit at a funeral, you're just sitting there and you start to have these deep aches and go, wow, this stuff really, really matters to me. When you're about to make a job change even, all of a sudden you start to think, am I really meant to do this for the rest of my life? Is there something more to this? So questions about destiny and purpose and identity rise up at different times with different levels of intensity. What if you could be certain, and by that I mean this, not 100% proof, but what if you could be certain, as in beyond all reasonable doubt, about the answers to these three questions? I mean, how would that, how would that change your life if that was true? I put a quote in your bulletin. It's not in your notes. It's in the actual bulletin. It says this. It's by Josh McDowell. Having convictions is being so thoroughly convinced that something is absolutely true that you take a stand for it regardless of the consequences. We talk a lot about belief. This book title that I got that from is this. Beyond Belief to Conviction. Those of you who rest on conviction stand in a different place than those who just say, yeah, I believe that to be true. Because you can believe many things to be true, but you wouldn't risk your life for it. You wouldn't really go out on much of a limb for it at all. Unless you have conviction about it. So then how do we get to a place of conviction? Back to this question of does God exist. Let me just say this. There's, there might be kind of a continuum of if there's absolute proof over here on this side, Okay, airtight, bomb-proof, proof. And then on the other end of the continuum is there's absolutely no proof. It's completely left up to whatever people think about it. Okay, So think about it as kind of a continuum. And with that continuum, what you might have is absolute belief, absolute unbelief. Most people in this room and most people you'll ever come across fall somewhere in, be in between those two. They don't think there's 100% proof, and they don't think that there's absolutely zero evidence out there at all. The question is this. Can we offer enough evidence to warrant making a 100% commitment to God or not? Now, some get nervous to say, you're a Christian pastor, and you just said we can't prove God exists. What kind of pastor are you? You know, Where where'd you go to school at? People who say that, and then try to offer proofs, usually end up looking really silly. Now, God did this. We talked about God hiding a little bit ago in our Smitten series. God does this thing. Why does God hide is a book title, I think, actually. And there's some interesting things to that of, of why God seems really present and not present at other times. That's a whole side discussion. But let me just throw this out to you. Many of you got in a car today and drove here making a 100% commitment. You're on that car going 35, or you're not on the car. You're not halfway, right? You made a 100% commitment without a 100% guarantee you would arrive here safely, right? You do that every time you get on an airplane to a greater degree, because if you fall over the ocean from 40,000 feet, eh, pretty bad chance that you'll live. So you make these giant steps of faith. You make these giant commitments, 100% commitment, without having 100% of the facts. All the time. I could point to the chair you're sitting in. Here's why you sat down in that chair. Many of you have sat in that chair for a lot of years. And so you go, yeah, I'm pretty convinced this chair is going to work. 
I look at that and say, that looks like a well-made chair. Most of you probably didn't think about the chair. But to be honest, you made a 100% commitment. Once again, sitting in the chair. What you're doing is you're saying, is there, is there, you know, again, without formally thinking this, is there statistical evidence that I'm going to arrive safely in my car that it's worth me getting into my car and getting there? And most of us this morning said yes. And so we jumped in our car and did that. I bring that up because as we talk, um, I want to, in a few moments, point to a few signposts. I call them signposts because they're not airtight proofs. And taken individually, they're different than when you start to piece the picture together and take them, take them all together. Keep in mind, too, we live in an age of skepticism. You know what used to be debated? It used to be, it used to be debated what kind of God is God? How many gods are there? The fact that there was a God or gods was a foregone conclusion for years and years and years. Now, we live currently, right now, in this day and age, and in this locale, in a certain period of skepticism, where the question now is, is there a God or not? Right? Isn't that more what you wrestle with? Sometimes you get to there with people, and then you can talk about what God is like. Um, God is God is repeatedly paying attention to doubters through the Scriptures and through history. Instead of sending them away and chastising them, here's what, here's what God does with doubters. He invites them in for a closer look and he invites them in for examination. Let me take you back to Thomas for a minute. Thomas is, is one of the famous doubters in the Bible, right? And here's Thomas and he's in an upper room and, and, and here's one skeptic amongst ten believers. If you're a skeptic here and you're saying, why doesn't the church ever talk about skeptics? Here it is. It's in the Bible. Maybe you're the one skeptic in the midst of a bunch of believers here this morning. You're in good company. Thomas was in there. He was a disciple of Jesus. Now, I'll tell you my personality. My personality is this. It is astounding to me that Thomas, who has been with this crowd of people and who is, and who knows these guys, I mean, they've been living life together intimately and following the Master for a long period of time and watching Jesus do these different things. He's seen miracles firsthand. It is shocking to me that he does not take the testimony of his ten closest friends that Jesus is in fact alive. That's just my personality. I look at that and say, how, how could he not do that? How could he not realize that these guys aren't making this up? It's not who these guys are. I've seen Jesus do other things that I have no explanation for. Why couldn't he rise from the dead and magically appear through the door in our midst? But you know what? Thomas is wired the way Thomas is because that's how God made him. Some people believe to see, so they will not take an eyewitness account. They will not take the testimony of others. They have to rub up against the facts themselves. Remember what Jesus says to him? He shows up once again in their midst, right? Here's Jesus. What was Thomas's condition of belief? Remember? He said this. Unless I see, right? Unless I see and maybe touch the, 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 the spots where the sword went, where the nails went. I won't believe that. He wanted to fix the world of the So Jesus shows up, what does he do? He offers that to him, right? And it's a beautiful picture of the skeptic. I really do. And it's just God will do the same here. He gives it to you. He says something kind of interesting and curious. I don't have this passage, so don't be able to read it up yourself. But he says this. He says, You because you saw blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen those 
so, two options here with this necessary case. It's self-existent um, and uncaused, or it just came into being. So you see where I'm going with this idea that if anything exists, you have to go back and say that something um, is contingent on that. The second one is very close to this. It's called the principle of causation. Causation points to the very beginning of the universe as good reason to believe there must be a cause outside of the universe, which suspiciously looks a lot like what people would describe as God. Here's the question that goes with that. What is the first cause that started all the other causes? Okay, so now we're on this contingency idea. We've gone back to the beginning. Here it is kind of written out in logical sequence. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Tracking with that? Now, mind you, a hundred years ago, I'm not sure exactly on the dates of that, but a while ago, let's put it that way, scientists discovered, really they theorized, that the universe was eternal and had no beginnings. Scientists have since come around to say, you know what, that's actually not true. We can tell by the fact of how the universe is moving and shaping, what's going on, that it definitely has a starting point. All the evidence points to a starting point. Are you familiar are you familiar with the Big Bang theory, not the TV show? Okay. So there is a scientific theory that's basically pointing to the fact that there was a beginning at some point. So what you're left with, if the, if the universe exists, and there are those, believe it or not, who are teaching our colleges that people are bringing them out and we don't really are sure that we exist. A whole other side story. And then pair them up with the guy in the bank, they're going to be financial plans. So, here's what we're left with. The, the, the universe has a cause, so it's either an impersonal event like the Big Bang that just kind of started it off there, or it's a personal agent. The evidence leads us to God, not the Christian God, but to God, namely timeless, powerful, intelligent, changeless, and a personal being. Tim Keller summed it up this way, and I love it. It says this, The theory that there is a God who made the world accounts for the evidence better um, than the theory that there is no God. For the universe to exist and have just started itself is another self-refuting claim. Because it's it has to, it's the law of non-contradiction. We use this in logic all the time without even thinking about it. That means that you have to both exist and not exist at the same time. A rational person looks at that and says, that's ludicrous. That's illogical. Let me get to the third one. The third one is character, the sense of right and wrong that is within us. Here's the question that accompanies that. Why do we have moral obligations? If I were to ask you, don't do this, this would just cause rioting, and I don't want that. But if I were to ask you to turn to your neighbor and slap them on the cheek as hard as you can, the person who just got slapped would be upset. First at the person who slapped them, then at me for telling the person to slap them. Right? When you are wronged, when someone is wronged, you are upset. You know when you're most upset? Is if I didn't turn the equation. Because at that point you're like, ow! But then you're like, surely he's going to let us slap back. And being second is better. Because I know how hard they slap me. 
I get the last slap. I mean, this is brothers growing up. It's basic, right? Here's the thing. You are upset when you're wrong. Where did that come from? Why is that there? Once again, science and naturalists, just elements forming together, cannot account for that. And yet it's universal. I wouldn't try this, but at the Olympic and the Olympic Village coming up soon, you could slap people from hundreds of nations. I mean, you could just go around all different corners of the earth and, and you could just have your little clipboard. You're like, yep, that guy tried to beat me up. Yep, that guy's bodyguard took me out. Yep, that person got pretty mad. I mean, I would venture to guess that as you walked around slapping, you'd have a pretty consistent uh, thing coming back at you. I hope that human trafficking infuriates you. It should. It should turn your stomach and make you feel absolutely disgusted. I read some stats on the World Cup and how many, uh, how much supply was needed to meet the demand of some disgusting things with human trafficking and the amount of people that were for sale in that worldwide celebration of soccer. That ought to just turn your stomach. It infuriates you because of this idea of morality. Now, we can put different names on it, the inner moral compass, your conscience, your guiding light, but it's in all of us. It couldn't just come from something lesser or equal to you, and it also doesn't just come from within us. Here's one of the evidences of that. If you travel the world again, go back to the Olympic Village, and you steal, and you lie, or you commit adultery, or you murder someone, you'd have, you'd have an equal uprising from all different kinds of cultures throughout the world on that. Ever read the Ten Commandments, right? Let me, let me read you a passage now, not to prove God exists or anything like that, but just listen to this to put a name to what I just said. Romans chapter 2, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even, the, even though they do not have the law. In other words, even if you don't write it down in ten words and hand it to a people and say, this is the word of God, people act on this anyways. It's the law written on their hearts. Verse 15 says this, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Those three all start with C. And I did that on purpose just to give you a little tool you say, man, I don't have my Bible. I want to engage with this. A friend of mine said this. Here's the way he strikes up conversations. He goes, listen, he's constantly studying and thinking on this. He says, listen, I've learned some interesting things about the cosmos, about the universe. And he just starts to talk to him about some of this stuff. I haven't gone to the Bible yet. All I'm asking is for a logical, rational thing. Where does the evidence begin to point with this? Now, I want to bring God's word into it. I learned this as a kid. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. That might have been on a t-shirt of mine. That might have been on a bumper sticker of our car. I'm not sure where, but I heard that somewhere. Here's what's interesting about that. I actually think, as we, as we have chewed on just truth and what we're talking about, I think this might have more validity to it um, from a biblical standpoint. Because this speaks to my own personal thing, that somehow my believing it makes it more valid. Right? I mean, that's the day and age in which we live. That's... That's sort of true for you, but until I believe it, now it's my truth, and now it's really, really true. Well, I cannot believe in death, once again, and still feel the effects of it. So I want to end with God said it. That settles it for me. I'm going to bring up some, um, just some passages. Isaiah chapter 45, 21 is in your, is in your bulletin. 
Uh, this happens to be, by the way, if you're in the blended reading plan, many of us are reading through the Bible this year or parts of the Bible. This was part of my devotional reading this week as I'm leading up to the existence of God. Thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty as I read this this week. Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. God knows and can be known. Just write this down, because we're not going to take time to read it, but an incredible passage, not only to meditate on, but to memorize. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 to 31. In that passage, you will just see a picture of God that's so powerful. God sent messengers through the ages and continues to send messengers. And here's what God's messengers do as I read the Bible. They're called to awaken people. Awake Oh, people, stop your slumber. It's to shake people out of a spiritual stupor that they might have fallen into. It's also to warn of sin's penalty. Over and over, the prophets are coming to say, turn, repent, judgment is coming. You've, you've run from the Lord. You've disregarded His words. So they awaken people, they warn people, and ultimately, as you see the picture unfold, it's to lovingly communicate that I created you, I love you. Stop running and striving and come to me. Over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament, you see this picture of return to me and I'll be gracious to you. Return to me. This discipline is meant to instruct you. It's meant to prevent death from you and to come back to me. Romans chapter 1 is another powerful passage you're going to look at as a community group this week. But in Romans chapter 1, it says this, that people knew God but did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. It also said that wicked unbelievers exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And it also says that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What that starts to indicate is maybe people deny God as an existent being isn't a problem with their logical thinking or their rationale or enough proofs that maybe there's something more going on. Maybe there's a moral component to this. People ignore this inner sense of God's existence. Psalm 14.1 and 53.1 say this, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it says in Psalm 10, that the wicked curses and renounces the Lord and then in pride repeatedly thinks there is no God. I went to both a secular uh, college and a Christian one. I'll tell you, I came across people who repeatedly, in their arrogance, said and spoke out of their heart, there is no God, and actually looked to morph and form the students under their care to follow that same path. Sin's effects can be irrationality and also an active denial and suppression of the truth. Here's what's interesting and self-condemning to all of us, believer and non-believer alike. We can know the right thing to do and not do it. 
often. You know the right thing to do, but for whatever reason, in that instance and occasion, you suppress the truth. Now, we can come back and say, why am I doing that? Why did I do that? Paul writes about this in Romans as well. Man, the very thing I want to be doing, I know it to be true, I don't do. And the very thing I know from personal experience leads to death and separation and heartache and shame, I do. Why is that? And so we can look at those and say, wow, there's a suppression of the truth that we're all capable of that ought to be frightening to us. Make us fall on our knees and beg for mercy from God. Today I've shown you just very briefly some of the cosmological argument and the moral argument. I've not looked at the witness of nature or the witness of Scripture. We're going to get into the witness of Scripture in a bit, but let me just throw out from the witness of nature. Psalm 19 is a great passage talking about the fact that day after day and night after night, knowledge is being poured forth to people. And whether you can read or write, you have access to it. I'm going to invite Rich up in just a second because we are going to be taking our apologetics knowledge and we're going to be applying it very specifically in the coming weeks. And I told you about this last week and in the weeks past, but we're going to be making some commitments and some ideas today. But just before he comes up, let me bring this back to salvation with this. Salvation comes from the witness of Scripture and the belief in Jesus Christ. Let me read for you Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. These are the people who came to awaken, to warn, to lovingly communicate about God. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Making, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Bible indicates that every single person you ever come across is a slave to sin or has been freed to be now a slave to God. It indicates that all people everywhere throughout the centuries have had a master that they're enslaved to. Many in this room could stand up and give testimony for hours and hours and hours about what it was like to be under the slavery of their own flesh and sin and being wayward from God and what it's like now to be a slave of God. Here's my, here's my prayer. Um, Rich, why don't you come on up? Here's my prayer. For those of you who are not believers this morning and have questions or wonder about the holes I left out or whatever, come talk to me. I'd love to chat with you more and pray with you and, and let's dialogue. For those of you who are believers, we are asking you to follow in the Lord Jesus Christ and to take up a towel in a very specific way that Rich is going to unfold. And my prayer this week has been, God, would you allow our community to see the neighbors around us as precious souls in your sight and when that begins to happen it changes our mindset toward them it changes what we're willing to do about them if we just believe it or if we're convinced and convicted that they really are precious souls made in the image of God it will change our behavior Rich, will not you uh, share with them
So um, probably about uh, 13 years ago or so, I was challenged to uh, prayer walk my neighborhood. And um, basically to walk my neighborhood and pray for the people that lived in the homes around me. And um, I, I took up that challenge. And I, I did that pretty consistently for maybe two or three years, prayed for my neighbors. And what happened during that time is I got to know my neighbors because I was walking by their house. I was praying for them. And I got to know, instead of houses in my neighborhood, I got to know households in my neighborhood. It's a, it's a massive difference. You know, that brown stucco four-bedroom, that's going to burn. The people inside are going to live forever somewhere. And um, as I got to know my neighbors, I had chances to, to just pray for them. Uh, sometimes they'd say, oh, you walk in the neighborhood again? And it was a great opportunity for me to say, well, actually, I'm walking in the neighborhood, but I'm walking in the neighborhood to pray for my neighbors, and I've been praying for you. And is there anything specific you'd like me to pray for you about? And Dave said last week in, in a suburban area, maybe 50-50, some will say, yeah, some, some will say that's okay. Um, sometimes I'd say, uh, if they give me a prayer request, I'd say, well, um, listen, if you feel comfortable, how about if I pray for you about that right now, out loud? And some would say yes. And some would say, no, I don't feel comfortable. I'd say, great, I'll just pray for it on my own later. And uh, I got really connected with people in my neighborhood. Um, we're challenging you to do the same thing, to prayer walk your neighborhood and to start praying for not just the houses, but the households of people that, uh, that live around you. Now, let me make it clear what we're not asking you to do. What we're not asking you to do is uh, every week to go up to your neighbors, knock on their door, introduce yourself, hey, I'm praying for you, and what are your prayer requests this week, okay? Nobody would do that. I know, I'm not going to do that, all right? And, and then I guess you'd have to tell them. And by the way, if you refuse me this week, next week I'm coming back to do it again, okay? That's... Nobody's going to sign up for that. So you're not. we're not asking you to knock on your neighbor's door. We're asking you pray for your neighbors. Talk to your father about your neighbors, okay? Uh, what you'll find is you'll develop an interest in them. You'll develop a, a heart for them, a compassion for them. Um, um, one of the things I encourage you to do on this is make it manageable. Uh, I've decided this, uh, for my uh, three-month, uh, once-a-week prayer walk, I'm going to pray. I pray for 17 homes. I can do that, okay? I can't pray for 100 homes. That's beyond my ability. So make it your apartment wing. Make it your cul-de-sac. Make it something that, that you can handle. Uh, the other thing I encourage you to do is uh, on the back uh, table here is is just this plan written out. It's called the Prayer Care Share Plan. Uh, this week I took this piece of paper and I handed it to two Christians that also live in my neighborhood. And I said, our church is going to be doing this. I'm going to be doing this. I want to offer this to you, for, for you to consider praying for, for our neighbors. I said, you don't have to. You can shred it. You can throw it away if you want to. But if you're interested, here are the details. You want to know more, uh, know more come and talk to me about it. Um, the other thing I encourage you to do is to count the cost. I, I mentioned that I did this uh, about 13 years ago, and I did it for several years. Well, I stopped doing it. And I stopped doing it, I think, for two reasons. One, it is a burden. It's a burden to take time out of your week. Uh, to once a week walk your neighborhood and pray for your neighborhood. Secondly, it's a burden to pray for your neighbors because you've just made that commitment, I'm going to pray for them. So if they give you a prayer request, you've got to hold that up. And that's a burden. And I think two things that stopped it for me, one was just laziness, and the other was lack of accountability. Nobody was holding me accountable to this. Well, this morning we're going to talk about that component of accountability, of holding each other accountable for this three-month experiment in walking our neighborhoods and praying once a week for our neighbors.
So, Dave, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Hey, let me bring the band up. Listen, just a couple more details about it. We have just kind of a recommended time frame on this. Um, thir- 13 years, you heard that. He didn't pray for He was saying 13 years ago. So we were like, how long are we asking for a commitment? Here's the commitment I'm asking for. As a church, we're saying, will you do this for the next three months? Valentine's Day is in a couple of days. How, how, how much better of a way could we love our neighbors as ourselves than by simply praying for them? And walking around and, as he said, pray for uh, not just the house, but the household, the uh, people that are in there. So we're asking once a week for the next three months. That's 12 walks in your neighborhood. That might have to reorient your schedule to, to fit that in. Um, here's what I want you to do right now. We're going to sing um, a couple of worship songs together. And I want, um, I do want you to count the costs. I don't want you to do this flippantly. Um, but as, a, as an act of just stating that, that I'm going to do this, I'm going to participate on this, I want you to do two things. I want you to grab one of these pens right here. I want you to go over that map of San Jose, and I want you to take your street or your cul-de-sac or wherever you're going to do, and I want you to draw on there which houses are covered. Now, I'll tell you, that's such a tiny little map. I mean, it looks like a big map, but it will look very unimpressive to, to do 17 homes. But here's what's really cool about that. The act of you drawing that will just trigger in your mind, you know what, no, I've, I've drawn, I've covered, I've got this street covered. This court, it's mine. I'm covering this court. Secondly, I want you to come up here. There's a, there's a Christianese term that we use called taking up the towel. And um, I think sometimes we romanticize that a little bit. Taking up a slave's towel in Jesus' day to wash the feet of the disciples was not glamorous. It wasn't something like, you know, big and dramatic. It was something as basic as, uh, you know, orange juice spilled in the next room. Someone's got to clean it up. Who wants to go do it? So taking up the towel in modern factor might be take up the paper towel. You are going to take a pen, and you're just going to write the name of your city across the top, and you're just going to write your street name next to it, or names, if you're covering more than one street. And what we're going to do is have you take this with it written on there, and I want you to just to come and lay it on one of these pairs of shoes, just just as a way of kind of coming to the altar and saying, Lord, before you, I'm just I'm just committing to do this. Our family, I as an individual, us as a couple, I as a teenager, I'm come I'm committing to cover my neighbors in prayer. The last part of this, and then we'll sing and we'll turn us loose. This means there will be all kinds of movement around and all of that. So get up out of your chairs and go do these things. The last component of this is this. We are going to be ending this initiative, Pray Your Walk, uh, right in line with our next neighborhood workabout. Every fall and every spring, we intentionally go out to our neighbors with the intent to simply serve them. You know what's powerful? Some people who sit in our church services every week are sitting here because at one of the workabouts, or one of you servants who have been... You were serving them. And they are now, instead of an unknown person from the community, they're now a roped-in person in the community. It's a powerful picture. We hope that as you go around and someone comes and says, hey, I've got this need, you're able to say, listen, not hypothetically, I've got some church people, I think we might be able to drum some help, but rather, on May 19th is our next workabout. Can, can I submit your name to just come and, and we could come and bless you by helping fix that? So you're armed with that. Capish, We got it? All right, I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, you're going to color, write, draw, walk, pray, sing along with us, and then we'll dismiss shortly. Father, thank you so much um, for just being who you are. God, it, um, 
it's awesome to be able to pray to you. It's awesome to be able to be given a mind uh, that is able to think logically. And God, you've, you've set up the universe. You've actually designed the universe in such a way that we can discover you. And God, I pray that those who are on this hunt, those who are on this journey, that they would, that they would lean into it, God, that they would press into it. Father, I pray that you would break my own heart for my neighbors in such a way that I would see them as precious souls in need of a relationship with you. God, for my friends here in this room, we all have shoes. We all can walk. Most of us can walk. And Lord, what a simple gesture to just say, use my feet and the feet of our church to communicate the gospel. Let's not expect them to come here and wait for them to come here. Let's obey you and go out into our streets, out into our neighborhoods. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.